0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Reunion, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan, in May 2017. So, you know when you're out and about and mistake someone on the street for someone you know? In the first story of the evening, Crystal Frost finds herself in what feels like a game of chicken with the stranger she at first thought she knew.
1: So when I think about it, the entire day was odd, starting with the weather. It was sunny and in the 70s and it was November. And I remember because I took my jacket off when I was walking back from lunch and I remember thinking, damn, it's a gorgeous day. And I was smiling like you do because you're from Northern Michigan. There was a spring in my step and we were all embracing what was most likely the final nice day of the year before the cold, dark winter sets in. And then something incredible happened. It was fantastic and absurd and outwardly insignificant, but it would stick with me. She was right there. I couldn't believe it. She was across the parking garage, and I called out, Gina! Like the way you do when your level of surprise outweighs your polite standards, I pretty much yelled it. Like I was calling from across a loud crowded bar and she turned around because of course she did. And I picked up my pace speed walking across that parking garage and smiling with excitement at the thought of seeing an old friend, one that I actually hadn't seen in real life in over a decade. But as I got closer, I realized this woman, the same woman I was pacing rapidly toward, was not, in fact, Gina. (laughs) And my legs didn't get the message because they're going and my brain's going, what are you doing? And I'm just walking because it was too late. I had yelled out this woman's name from across a parking garage. It was too late to turn back. I couldn't, like, look around and be like, no, it's you over there. there was no escape so i started to say something but before i could say something like i'm sorry i thought you were someone else she spoke oh my god hello how are you and now she was moving toward me this not gina smiling from ear to ear as my thoughts went from how do i get out of this awkward conversation awkward encounter to Wait, does she know me? Who is this person? It was sheer desperation masked with a plastered smile and before I knew it, I was hugging not Gina, wondering (laughs) if I might be on candid camera or having a mild stroke. Was this Gina? Was I crazy? I scanned her face as she spoke, asking about my family and my job. No specifics, I noticed. She didn't call them by their names. nor had she said my name, and she didn't really ask any particulars about my life. But then again, I didn't really offer any definitive details. I was set firmly at this point on autopilot, responding with nods (laughs) and quick answers like, they're good, it's great. (laughs) My eyes were widening. My smile was stretching to the point of insanity. Who the hell was this person? What the hell was going on? What kind of a twisted game are you playing, not Gina? (laughs) And at this point, I had left my body. It was the equivalent of when, uh, what I can only assume actually happens to your brain when you're sleeping. Like the night crew arrives and they take over your critical functions, like all they're responsible for are breathing and heartbeats while the rest of your like day crew, they go to relax, you know? maybe enjoy some dreaming like it's a movie. Always imagine uh, my crew turns on Netflix and then pulls out these sandwiches from these like, old timey lunch pails, you know? And they're wearing hard hats and they all have glasses and they're all men, which is probably saying something terrible or important about myself. <laughs> but that's another story. In that moment though, the crew that controls my conversational function was gone. Only one intern remained. And it was like a teenage kid that was really insecure and didn't know what to say. Everybody else was in the memory bank trying to uncover the identity of not Gina (laughs) because I must know her. And my inner dialogue, it sounded something like this. Oh my God, who is this? You have to know her. Wait, now you're sweating. You have that little bead of sweat on your lip. She's gonna think you're a crazy person. Maybe you are a crazy person. You just hugged a goddamn stranger and you're pretending that you know her. What if you do know her? What if not Gina is real and she had some sort of Kenny Rogers plastic surgery? What if you accidentally slipped into an alternative universe? What if you're not you? Look down at your hands, quick. Yeah, those are your hands. Okay, stop looking at your hands. Wait. Did you just ask her about her job? What are you saying? Stop talking, you are a crazy person, oh no. She just asked you a question, what did she ask? Wait, wait, what do you say? Why are you nodding? Oh my God, abort, 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 make up an excuse. And so suddenly I blurted out, I'm sorry, I have to go back to work, great to see you, goodbye, and I ran back into my building. And I slammed the door behind me and stood against the wall like you do when you're in trouble and you just outran the cops or something? <laughs> and I thought, what just happened? Because not Gina seemed convinced that she knew me, but even so, I didn't know her, so I was playing along. But why? Why was I pretending I knew not Gina? I mean, what? What was it because I didn't want to embarrass her? Did I not want to embarrass myself? I, I didn't know this person. And Then it occurred to me, what if not Gina was also pretending? (laughs) What if she thought I was someone else and the two of us were stuck awkwardly in the unpleasantries of good social graces, fumbling our way through this labyrinth of an exchange that had somehow gotten away from us? It felt like an hour had passed, but it was actually only two minutes, maybe. Two minutes of pretending that we knew each other. And she said she would send me a message on Facebook and we would have lunch, but she never did because she's a stranger. (laughs) I had just caused myself to have an internal meltdown, and as far as I can tell, not Gina was doing the same thing. Both of us were pretending and faking it for 120 seconds, just pretending to be someone else, pretending to be whatever it was that we thought we needed to be in that moment, just two strangers, fulfilling what we thought that other stranger needed in order to move forward with our day. I thought about that. How often am I pretending for the benefit of someone else? How many times in my day am I just going through the motions? Often? A lot? All the time? Sure, it's not always as intense of a performance with Not Gina as it was (laughs) at that point. It's as simple as a question from a waiter, like, how are you this evening? We all answer in short, non-committal, non-aggressive, sometimes not true answers, because Jeff from the, the Applebee's doesn't want to know how we're really feeling He doesn't want to know that you're feeling insecure over something, he doesn't want to know that you're thinking obsessively about whether or not you should have another baby. He just wants to take your order for coconut shrimp and he wants to move on to the next table. It's a formality. But it's not just Jeff, the waiter, it's co-workers and, and family members. Sometimes it's as simple as even my husband asking how my day was and I just say fine, because. I don't want to get into a whole exchange about whatever shittiness or craziness or all aroundness happened. And much of it, much of this pretending is actually good because think about this it's holding our fragile society together. If we went around telling people exactly how we felt all the time, it would be chaos, it would be hurt feelings and <laughs> provoked instability, it would be a world where people were no longer hiding behind their secret online identities, and they would just tell you what they think or they feel or they want without the slightest glimpse of a filter, and that would be awful. So we pretend. We, we don't tell the whole story. We condense our feelings into 140 characters or less, because sometimes it's just easier, and sometimes I really don't want to talk about it. And sometimes I just want to get home and play some repetitive game on my iPad for half an hour while I decompress matching fruit together and spreading jelly around (laughs) and moving to the next level. Because that's all we're really trying to do. That's why we pretend. We're just faking it until we make it to the next level. Even if we didn't master our current level Even if we have the lowest score on that particular level, on that particular day, we're all just trying to move up and move on and move forward. So back at work, I logged into Facebook to message Real Gina. Because if anything, I thought this was a great opportunity to reach out to this old friend, this woman, whom I had called to from across the parking garage, this woman I had been thrilled to almost see on that beautiful November day. And I told her about this incredibly odd thing, what happened and how surreal it all was. And she sent back an LOL. And we chatted online briefly, you know, how's your family? How are your jobs? (laughs) Sort of the same things that I talked to not Gina about (laughs) for about two minutes or so. And then we moved on with our day to the next level. Thank you.
0: In the next story, Heather Shalgi says that she needed her father's help on a home project, but she wasn't sure if he'd come or for how long he'd stay. And together they ended up repairing more than just the house. So towards the end of
2: 2015, my financial situation shifted and I needed to get <coughs> my house sold quickly as possible. To get the most money out of my house, I would need to finish the basement and some other unfinished projects. I really needed my dad's help to pull this off. The problem was, I wasn't sure he would have time to do it and I had grown accustomed to him not being around, available, or frankly, any significant part of my life. For the prior three years, he had been working out of state and during those years, we saw him once or twice a year over a short weekend. He gets overwhelmed easily by all the grandkids running around and eventually retreats to his pole barn. So even on our visits, there wasn't much bonding time. Although my dad is only 59 years old, he has worked his body really hard and he's careless with his overall well-being. He's a chain smoker. He often drinks too much Budweiser to help cure his, dull the pain in his um, hands and his body. He rides motorcycles, and when not under the care of my mother's cooking, he survives on coffee, Twinkies, Swiss cake rolls, bologna, cheese, and (laughs) egg salad sandwiches from gas stations. (sighs) We joke that he heals so quickly because of all the preservatives in his body. (laughs) Because of his lifestyle choices and his reckless behavior, over these past few years, every time my mother would call me, I would half expect her to tell me that he was dead. Because of this, I found myself withdrawing and mentally preparing for and prematurely mourning his death. I built up this wall to try to protect myself from the loss. My dad is a wandering soul, so it is hard to track him down. He looks like Willie Nelson, although instead of braids, he wears his strawberry blonde hair and a ponytail at the back of his neck, like you would expect from any good Harley-Davidson marble Man. And he would have been played, he will be played by Clint Eastwood or Chuck Norris in a story about his life. <laughs> I finally got a hold of him and he said um, that he would be able to come the following week. The thing about my dad is that that's about as much planning as you get. You never know exactly when he's going to show up or when he's going to leave and you learn quickly never to ask those questions. One night at dinner, my daughter asked, Grandpa, how long are you staying? And I was like, shh, we don't ask Grandpa those questions. And I said, because he might realize that he's been here for a week, and might decide that was enough time for a work visit, and uh, he probably should go ride his motorcycle. But I I desperately needed him to stay. So I was like, don't, don't, don't. So my dad did come, and we worked side by side for pockets of days over the next few months. It was incredible working with him, but also extremely exhausting as he doesn't stop working from the time he wakes up until he goes to sleep. He is a genius in what comes to figuring things out. I, as he likes to say, can never do anything the easy way. I like to reuse and repurpose old wood and he would just like to buy it brand new. But after a sufficient amount of grumbling to ensure I know he disagrees with my choices, He figures out how to use the materials I wanted and most of the time makes it look twice as beautiful as I had imagined it would be. He can crawl into the smallest places to replace wiring and climb to the highest point of the roof to fix the chimney. During those days, we had a synergy. When completing a task, we rarely had to speak. We just worked intuitively, anticipating each other's moves and the wall I had painstakingly built up around my heart began to crumble. We eventually finished and sold my house for even more than expected. I originally had planned to rent, but I found a place to buy that was too good of a deal to pass up. However, it would need to be totally gutted. (laughs) My dad was coming back up to do some finishing work on the house, and I took him over to the potential new place to see what he thought. In typical dad fashion, he walked through the house, shaking his head, not speaking, and then he walked right past me and got into his truck and sat there and smoked two cigarettes and just staring out the window. (laughs) I just paced back and forth waiting for the verdict. He finally came back inside and asked why I wanted this dump. I walked him down to this shared be- beach access and, looking over the water, explained the financial benefit for me and the kids to live in a place that we could purchase outright, assuming he would be able to help us fix it. He finally looked me in the eyes, decision made, and said, all right. So we began renovation number two. This one had even more profound effect on our relationship and that with my kids. I walked in one day to find my 14-year-old son wearing my dad's jean work shirt with safety glasses and holding a sawzall, cutting out old studs that my dad was, as my dad was directing him to do. It was incredible to see my dad passing on his knowledge to my son, and I thought, this, this is why I need you in my life, and more of the wall crumbled. Again, Dad and I worked side-by-side, side, sometimes from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night, and I got to finally be on the receiving end of the construction terms I had grown up hearing him say to my uncles whenever they would build build things. Like when you've lined up and leveled that board, just before you screw it in, Dad would say, like it? And if it's straight and level, I'd respond, yep. (laughs) And if all is installed properly at the end, Dad would get out the level and check it and announce, that's dead nuts accurate. (laughs) That's the official confirmation of a job well done. Then on some nights at the end of a hard day, we would sit in his truck because it was warm, and he would smoke his cigarettes, and we would drink beer, and he would tell me stories. He told me about his last day of his senior year in high school. I should note it wasn't everybody's last day of high school, just (laughs) his. (coughs) He had found out the night before that my mom was pregnant with me. He had done something to upset his drafting teacher and he was kicked out of class and that made him mad because he really liked drafting class. So he was walking from that building to the main building when this big football player and his two friends came walking toward him and the guy said, hey, Donnie, I hear you're seeing some whore from Detroit. My dad became completely unglued and smashed the guy's face into a Coke machine and then jumped on top of him like Ralphie from A Christmas Story until the shop teacher grabbed him and pulled him off. My dad, assuming it was one of the other guys, pulled back and punched the teacher in the face, breaking his glasses. Realizing his mistake, he took off running toward the building and the door opened and the assistant principal walked out. And since he was on a roll, my dad punched him too. (laughs) He drove home where the police were waiting for him because they knew where he lived. They've been there many times. The football player's jaw had to be wired shut, and my dad's younger brother was spared the hazing and bullying of high school because he was, and I quote, Donnie's little brother. (laughs) A few months later, my parents were married, and my dad was in the Army. Fast forward 11 years, we moved back to dad's hometown, and my new best friend in fifth grade is the shop teacher's daughter. (laughs) He also ended up telling me a, a little bit about the Army, He enlisted in 1975, so the Vietnam War had ended. However, it wasn't totally over. He was in a special unit that rescued prisoners of war. He told me that during that time, he saved 17 men, but he killed men to do it. And he said he has never gotten over the fact that those men he killed didn't get to have families or make it home to their loved ones. And through his tears, he said... I hope you can forgive me for that. And the fact that he has been carrying that burden for 40 years and cared about those men who was more than I could process. He hugged, we hugged and cried and reminded him of that man that came up to him at the Vietnam Memorial event because my dad had his name on his coat. And the man asked him if he was the same Hudson that had rescued men from a specific POW camp, which he was. And that man showed him pictures of his family and of his kids and his grandkids. And he said, they all know your name because they exist, because you saved me. He said that knowledge gives him some relief, but he told me that he still isn't sure he deserves to live from that time he was shot in the chest multiple times at the age of 19. And that every day past that day is a bonus and he's surprised he's still alive, which also helped me understand why he behaves the way that he does. After, ni- after that night, the wall was completely down Through our tears, we both learned to love and respect each other in a way I don't think either one of us expected, but which we both greatly needed. I wanted my dad to help me rebuild my home, and what ended up being rebuilt was our relationship. I've moved into my new place. It's still not done yet. My dad hasn't been back for a few months, but I know he'll show up sometime, maybe even tomorrow. So I've got coffee and Twinkies in the cupboard and Budweiser in the fridge, just in case. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Next, Ann Bonnie is in an unfamiliar city on a ghastly hot day and no clue as to what was her brother's phone number or address. So how was she going to find him after they got separated at the Chicago Marathon? So my brother and I were standing on the
3: starting line of the 2007 Chicago Marathon on a day that the weatherman predicted would be in the high 90s with 100% humidity. This was not ideal marathon conditions. The outlook was actually so bleak that uh, they estimated that 10,000 runners who were registered didn't even show up to the starting line. But despite the danger that it presented, I was really excited to be there because I was running probably four marathons a year, now very slowly, um, and I was training for a 50 mile run. So this wasn't a big deal for me, but my musician brother, who I was actually surprised even owned running shoes, was his, this was his first marathon. So I was really excited to be there to accompany and supervise him in his first marathon experience. So we agreed we would have fun and we would be smart and we would just finish the 26 miles. So the gun went off and off we ran. Now an hour later it hit about 90 degrees and we got to a fountain on the sidewalk where a bunch of runners were kind of dipping themselves and stuff. And so I thought that looked like a great idea. So I stuck my hat in the coolish water and dumped it on my head. And my brother, I was about to go in for another dip, and my brother reminded me that pigeons and sometimes people use that fountain as a bathroom and uh, <laughs> kind of diminished the cooling effect of the water. And I didn't go in for another dip. <laughs> By 10 a.m., we were walking more than we were running. And there were spectators all along the way, and they had ice buckets and hoses and, like, I- w- um, what do you call them, oranges and all kinds of things. Usually, spectators at marathons are really, really supportive, but these people were going all out, and it was, it was really great. So we got to the next water station, and they'd actually run out of Gatorade. They only had water, and we hadn't had many electrolytes in a while, so we decided um, we needed some because we were sweating a lot. So I sent my brother into the 7-Eleven for some fuel with a soggy $20 bill that he had extracted from his sock. He came out proudly about a couple minutes later with a microwave burrito and a jolt cola. I scolded myself for not being more specific. I took the burrito, put it in the trash, grabbed some money, went in for two sport bottles of Gatorade. So at mile 13, we are halfway done. We get to a um, water stop that's really, really chaotic. There's a lot of people stopped, a lot of people drinking water, eating food, barfing in the garbage can, laying on the sidewalk, standing and sweating in the porta potty line. It was a mess. So I grabbed some water, reached down to tie my shoe, and I stand back up, and my brother is gone. I have no idea where he is. Um, There's sirens. I hear a siren coming. And, you know, losing somebody in a water stop is not that big a deal. I figured I'd just go ahead and just turn around and watch, and he would come up, and we'd go. But I stood there for five minutes, and he never showed up. Um, So I decided he probably went on, and I could just speed up a little and probably catch him. So I ran on. And I was a little bit worried, but mostly I was pissed because I didn't come from Baltimore to Chicago to run a marathon by myself. We had had a lot of fun laughing and talking and taking pictures and having a good time for the first half, and I didn't want to do the rest by myself. This really kind of sucked, and so I was looking for him. Um, Running through a lot of the water, the city had at this point turned on the fire hydrants, and so there's water shooting out all over the place, and that was kind of nice, and it came in handy because the next water stop, they didn't have any more water. Now, all the runners had drunk so much of the water, there was no water left. And uh, so I had held on to my empty Gatorade bottle, hoping to fill it at that station. Water, not having water, wasn't an option. So I decided to try to fill my bottle at the fire hydrant, which, for the record, is very, very difficult, because it's got, you know, your bottle's got this little hole, and you've got to tip it like this, and it's shooting out, and millions splashing all over you. So, um, and for the record, fire hydrant water doesn't taste very good, <laughs> but at least I had water. Um, So I jogged another few miles and still couldn't find my brother. And now I was really getting worried. You know, I was wondering, is he okay? Like, had he passed out at the water stop at mile 13? Or had he sped up to try to find me and passed out? Was he sitting on the sidewalk eating a frozen burrito? (laughs) What? Where was he? And I didn't know. And then I heard somebody on a bullhorn in the distance. You know, and so I run closer and I hear them say, the race has been canceled. We've turned off the clock. We're gonna reroute you straight to the finish line, which is about two miles away. So stop running, start walking, and you know this is for your safety. We're really sorry, but walk the rest of the way. So then I realized, aside from being pissed that I have to finish this alone, I got a bigger problem. Because I got no money, I got no phone, I don't know where I am, I don't know where my brother is, I don't know Chicago very well, I don't know his phone number, and I don't know his address. So I'm plodding along, tr- racking my brain, trying to figure out what the hell to do. Like, what if I can't find him at the finish line? So I'm running, and finally I realize that the one number I know in the whole world is my parents' phone number here in Traverse City. <laughs> it's one number I know. So hopefully somebody's home and they can give me my brother's phone number. Then I don't have a phone, so I run up to some random friendly looking spectator, and there weren't many anymore, so I had to go find her. She looked super friendly, so I walk up and I'm like, "Hi, I lost my brother, and I gotta call Michigan, and I gotta call Chicago, and then can I don't oh, a phone, and I lost my brother. Can I please use your phone?" And um, she was very nice and kind of awkwardly hands me her phone, and I call, and luckily my mother's home, and she gives me my brother's number, and I get my brother on the phone, and I'm relieved, and I'm overjoyed, and I'm pissed, and I'm weeping, and I'm like, "Are you okay? Where are you? Where did you go? What are you doing? Oh my
0: God, are you okay? Where do I find you?"
3: Finally, I shut up. And my brother and I decide where we're gonna meet. And I wipe the sweat off the lady's phone as best I can on my sweaty clothes and awkwardly hand it to her with thanks for saving my life. So I run on and my main problem is over. I know I'm meeting my brother, I know where to go, but I've still got two miles left. And I realize after my emotional reaction on the phone that I'm a little overheated and I'm a little bit dehydrated, uh, but I really wanna get this over with. So I just plod on. The sound of sirens now is constant, and I'm weaving in and out of the zombied remains of the rest of the runners, and I hear, stop running. And I turn, and there's a cop, and I wave at him, and I'm like, I'm all right, sir, don't worry about it. You know, I I feel good. I just want to get this over with. And he says, ma'am, please stop running. The city has run out of ambulances. If you go down, we can't help you. So I finally make it to our meeting point and my brother's there under a tree eating a bag of Doritos. (laughs) And I tackle him and I hug him and squeeze him and I punch him in the arm and then I squeeze him again and I'm just like so happy to see him. It had only been about two hours but it felt like it had been 20 years. And you know, I was just so glad he was okay and I was so glad that I found him and I was so glad we were done. And the uh, L trains were packed on the way home with sweaty runners. And we decided, let's just skip that. Even though we were disgusting, we stopped for a burger and a beer. And we went on with a constant chatter of what had happened and where we'd been and what we'd seen and what we'd done. And it felt like we just survived a war together and uh, come out alive. And we still laugh about my reactions. And thankfully, Mom was home and how it all went down. And... Uh, although he's never said he'd do another marathon with me. We've done other races, and as we cross the finish line together, I always have my phone in one hand and a soggy 20 in my sports bra. (laughs) Thank you.
0: In our next story, Larry Heitman explains how he became a bit of a bar rat as a young child after he found out that some bartenders were willing to serve him chocolate ice cream.
4: I was born and raised in Detroit, and when I was eight years old, my dad bought me a bike, a two-wheel bike. And I'll tell you the truth, I was a little bit afraid of this bike, because I'd seen kids crash them and get all skinned up. So I asked my dad about it, and he said, "We'll sit down at the table, we'll talk about it. That's where we had all our serious discussions at the table. So he took a quarter out of his pocket and he said, let me see you stand it up. Well, I tried, I couldn't do it. Then he took the quarter and he spun it out into the middle of the table. And it spun for about 10 seconds and it fell over. He said, it's the same way with your bike. All this spinning, the front wheel, the back wheel, the sprocket, the pedals, even your feet, all this spinning helps steady the bike. Then you steer it, make corrections said, it's called the electromagnetic gravitational force field, Larry. <laughs> I said, yeah, thanks a lot. That's a big help, that gravitational force field. Electromagnetic, geez. So he said, well, come on outside and I'll show you. So within 10 minutes, I'm riding it, no sweat. I mean, it was wonderful. I could get to places fast and it was fun. And he gave me a lot of safety instructions. The main thing was don't ride your bike on Warren Avenue. It's just, there's just too much traffic. Stay on our side of Warren Avenue. I said, yeah, Dad, I got it, I got it. Well, about two weeks later, I was riding my bike out Warren Avenue. (laughs) On the sidewalk, thank you. And it it was a hot summer day, about 85. I 85 in the shade and I had some allowance money and I wanted a chocolate ice cream cone. But the only place that sold them was Robin's Drugstore and it was on the other side of Warren. I couldn't go there. But I did come across a place called the Bedford Inn. It was on the corner of Bedford and Warren. And I walked inside and it was a bar and it was crowded. And the bartender did not look all that friendly. He said, what can I do for you, Sonny? I said, well, I would like a chocolate ice cream cone, please. I have money, my allowance. (laughs) He said, we don't serve ice cream cones here. You'll have to leave. Well, the waitress overheard him. And she said, Pete, just go on back to the kitchen and get him uh, some ice cream out of the freezer. So he said, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. So he came back with... uh, paper cup with two scoops of chocolate ice cream and a spoon. He said, There's no charge, Sonny, but you'll have to eat it outside by your bike. I said, Yes, sir. So I started walking out and he said, and don't forget to bring the spoon back. I said, yes, sir. So I went up on my bike, ate the two scoops of chocolate ice cream. I dropped the paper cup in a trash container that stood by the curb. I walked back in and gave him the spoon back but my fingers were sticky from the ice cream. I said, can I have a napkin, please? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. And I said, would you put a little bit of water on it? (laughs) Yeah, whatever. So I wiped off my sticky fingers, walked out and dropped the napkin in the trash container and took off on my bike. Well, a couple of weeks later, it was another hot summer day, about 90 in the shade. And I walked into the Bedford Inn. (laughs) He said, it's you. (laughs) The waitress nodded toward the kitchen. He said, chocolate ice cream, right? I said, yes, sir. So he came out of the kitchen with a paper cup, two scoops of chocolate ice cream and a spoon, and I said, can I have a napkin, please? (laughs) He said, yeah, yeah, sure, I forgot. Well, I didn't go back to the Bedford Inn again that summer, but the following summer, I would have been nine. It was another hot summer day, about 95 in the shade. I walked into the Bedford Inn and the bartender said, it's you again, did you have a good winter? And what's your name? I said, the winter was tolerable. <laughs> I'm Larry. Michigan, what can you say? (laughs) Well, I'm not 100% sure that I said tolerable. I'd say it's probably 50-50, maybe 60-40. Because when I was a kid, I liked to use big words. And tolerable was one of my favorite words. (laughs) I also like somewhat. (laughs) Start laughing. Mother uh, would say, Larry, did you like your spinach? It was tolerable. (laughs) And how do you like your your new homeroom teacher? She's tolerable, somewhat. (laughs) Like that. Well, every summer for the next four or five years, I would go back to the Bedford Inn for ice cream. And one day I went in there early. It was in the morning, and... Uh, the, there was nobody in the bar, and I found out the waitress name was Jean, and she and Pete were married, and they owned the Bedford Inn. And Pete said, come on, Larry, you can sit with us. You don't have to go outside by your bike. So I came out of the kitchen with the ice cream and uh, uh, a spoon and a napkin and all that, but it was on, in a dish. Plates and a a cloth napkin and water but sometimes you know you just you just know in your heart when something is perfect and this was a smash (laughs) free ice cream with these two great people so i had a chance to use my big words and it made him laugh but When I was 19, I got drafted into the Army, and uh, the Army requested that when we were on leave, that we, out in public, we wear our Class A uniforms. They were khakis, they were comfortable. So I was riding my car west on Warren Avenue wearing my Class A's, and it was a hot summer day, about 100 in the shade. (laughs) I made a U-turn and parked in front of the Bedford Inn and walked inside and Pete and Jean were still there. They looked a little older, but hadn't been that long, really. So I walked up to the bar and Pete said, what can I get you, soldier? I said, well, I'd like a paper cup with two scoops of chocolate ice cream with a spoon and a napkin, please. I have money, (laughs) $37.50 a month from the Army. He said, oh, my God, Larry, we wonder what happened to you. How have you been? We missed you, that kind of thing. And I said, I'm good. How are you and Gene? He said, we're great. I said, Pete, instead of the ice cream, I'll have a beer. (laughs) He said, on me, Larry, some things never change. Well, Gene recognized me right away, and the three of us talked for a while. But uh, I said, Pete, would you do me a favor? Would you please let me buy you a dish of ice cream? He said, surely I could use one. So he came out of the kitchen with two paper cups. Each one had two scoops of chocolate ice cream, spoons, and he remembered the napkins. What a guy. (laughs) So it was time to leave, and I hugged Gene, and I shook Pete's hand. But I could see his eyes kind of glaze over a little bit, he looked out at the napkins on the bar and I could see his lower lip kind of quiver. He didn't shed a tear, but, but he came close. So I walked out of the Bedford Inn, but I didn't, have a, I didn't have a paper cup or a napkin to drop in the trash container that still stood there by the curb. So I sat in my car for a few minutes thinking about what just happened. And I was the one that shed a few tears. But telling this story brings back memories. My dad, I can still hear his voice spinning that quarter. It's the electromagnetic gravitational force field, Larry, he said. He was probably right, he's a pretty smart guy. Memories of my bike and ice cream with Pete and Jean. And the next time I'm in Detroit, in my old neighborhood, I may drive by the Bedford Inn if it's still there, but I won't go inside because Pete and Jean won't be there. And I don't like messing with memories. Try to recreate something that's already perfect, doesn't work. It's kind of like the old Burt Backrack song sung by Dionne Warwick. I'm sure you know it. Walk on by. Don't stop. Walk on by. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Next, James Berg is finding that it's no easy feat to reunite with a hippie collective he was once part of.
5: I used to know this guy on the south side. They called him Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf had a gray beard and long gray hair and piercing blue eyes. When he smiled, he showed long teeth like fangs. And I always sort of half expected he was gonna lunge from my throat. (laughs) Mr. Wolf ran a guitar jam out of his little bungalow near Midway Airport every Friday night with his wife, this tall, thin gal with long reddish hair. She was the queen of the underground. She always had her hair in braids and big peace symbol earrings. They had peace symbols all over the house. They were hippies. Mr. Wolf would say it all the time. We're hippies. Kind of tuck his head into his shoulders (laughs) and (laughs) grin like it was a dirty secret we all shared. Hippies. (laughs) He was German. His father had been a magician, and the family came over after the war as refugees, and that's when he got the nickname from the American kids on the playground after they were taunting him as a Nazi. Now, my wife, she's French. She always called them les vieux hippies, or sometimes the dirty hippies. <laughs> it was a joke that we shared with a good friend of mine, the guy who introduced me to this group. He was a stand-up comedian. He did his act as an, in, a, in an Elvis Presley outfit. The night when Elvis Presley introduced me to the Friday night jam was like the night when I first met my wife, a coup de foudre, a bolt of lightning. The queen of the underground was shouting out, hitters, and everybody passed up their drug pipes. <laughs> and there was this old lady whose old job was just to pack the pipes and the, the vaporizer with the big plastic bag that folks would suck off of. I understand this might not be everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> the People were very nice and I'm more than happy to live as a college student forever if I can. <laughs> so I, I was hooked. There were sometimes a dozen or a couple dozen people at the jam, uh, maybe sometimes about half men, half women. The men were all enormous, 300 pounds each. Everybody would put their, their coats and their cases in the bedroom and sort of step over each other to get into the living room where we'd play. Mr. Wolf would start a song. And then the mic would go around, round, round robin style. And sometimes it took a couple hours because people would talk, and especially if they had the floor, everybody would talk, 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 until people would just shout, you know, play, play, play. And nobody, nobody would get up until Mr. Wolf played a second song. But I always found the ritual fascinating and all the little rules that people had to operate to talk with each other in this scene. And it always reminded me of uh, walking into a saloon. Uh, Mr. Wolf was kind of the uh, beloved dictator And it was very important for him to be seen as a guru figure. I appreciated that, and it didn't bother me, but it was kind of hard to sort of consider us to be friends. It was fun to play next to him, but I remember one time he kind of leaned over, and he just sort of scowled at me. He pointed, he said, you're French. (laughs) And then he held his his paw against his chest, and he's like, I'm German, so we're never going to be able to get along. The the begin the, the end of the jam for me was uh, when Mr. Wolf developed stomach cramps and he was diagnosed with cancer. Too many Pepsi-Colas, maybe, who knows. But over a period of about nine months, I watched his, his face grow so thin, I could see a skull. And his body just withered and he was walking around the house. He looked like a giant Pez dispenser. And he kept saying, curtains. And uh, the saddest part was he kept telling everybody he'd stop believing in God. And I was there the night when he died, and I heard his last gasp from his bedroom and his wife on the bed crying. And I was only there because Elvis had asked that I come, and I couldn't stand it, I ran out, I said I was gonna buy toilet paper, or cleaning supplies or something. Um, But the jam after that changed, everybody was, was drinking a lot, and it was fun at first. We were doing all the things that were forbidden from Mr. Wolf, having long conversations and revealing things about ourselves. Um, There was this kid who was kind of like the son of them, of the couple, and he was Mr. Wolf's protege. He moved into the house right away, and he inherited all of Mr. Wolf's stuff, his clothes, his jewelry, his instruments, his songs, his seat at the jam, his wife. I was taking a Freudian psychology class at the time. And I remember I just so much wanted to ask my good friend Elvis Presley about what was going on, but he was so nervous, everybody was so nervous. Everybody just kept saying, we're a family, we're a family. And everybody was hooking up or trying to. I remember just kind of hands gliding when you pass the mic and legs. And one girl said, you can grind me if you want. <laughs> Came in one day, the queen of the underground said, I don't wanna have sex with you. And my friend Elvis, I could just sort of see just what was going on and, and sometimes it seemed like he was just seething from the other side of the circle. There was jealousy and gossip and outrage. Somebody was mad at me because I was mad at somebody else because somebody else was mad at me. The whole scene just kind of started to seem lo- like a lot of drama for a bunch of stoners <laughs> in some lady's house. So last night I was there, I, kinda, I knew I wasn't coming back. I just sort of smiled and gave everybody a fist bump. And um, the worst part was my friend. Um, he just started saying the most terrible things to me. And I understand the role that Mr. Wolf played in his life. I understand that he needed this man for a sense of compassion that, frankly, I didn't need from him and stability. But when he was drinking, the things that he said to me, nobody wants you here. You don't honor Mr. Wolf. So when I left, people were sending me messages, and I didn't reply. Finally, I sent my friend Elvis an email, and I was like, "You and me, we better talk. We're gonna figure this out, or not. You know, bro, I'm not gonna see you in 20 years. What do you think about that?" And you know, that was a couple <laughs> years ago. I haven't heard from him since, <laughs> but I'm still hopeful. Uh, I kind of think that we exist in this sort of unsettled space right now. He's waiting. I'm waiting to hear from him so that we could reconnect and just not fall into the same weird patterns of provocation and whatnot. But he's probably just waiting for me to show up at the jam. And I'm not sure if I want to. Uh, But I know that, you know, the people that we surround ourselves with, just a handful of our closest friends, really affect how we relate to everybody. And so right now I'm just kind of trying to make new connections and trying to be stronger and kinder. And I just hope that my friends over there are doing the same.
0: It's never easy to let go of a past love when everything seemed so perfect. In our next story, Betsy Emden tells of how she arranged a reunion with a man from college she'd never forgotten and how it upended her life.
6: I sat at a table at a Thai restaurant on the lower, on lower Second Avenue in New York City. My daughter and her boyfriend sat across from me. We all lived in Holland, Michigan, and the trip to New York was a graduation gift to her and for me, a week of respite from my wretched marriage. The remains of dinner were in front of us. My phone was on the table and I stared at it like it was a miniature atomic bomb. In my hand was a sweat dampened slip of paper with a phone number I had acquired for three bucks from an internet people search site. All I had to do was punch in the numbers and I'd be connected to David, a friend I had not seen or heard from in almost 30 years. David was a man I had thought about, fantasized about, and dreamed about for all this time. I'd met him when we were students at Hope College. He found me one morning sitting alone in the college coffee shop. He wondered if I was from Europe, because I didn't look like other girls on campus. Me? Europe? <laughs> I was from Grand Rapids, a mere 30 miles away, <laughs> and my life was about as dull as a chick's in an unhatched egg. <laughs> he was Fay, magnetic, and gorgeous. He was from New Jersey, just across the river from New York City, where he spent much of his time, when he wasn't hitchhiking around Europe, that is. He talked of New York nightlife and drinking cappuccino in Italy. Cappuccino, that sounded so exotic. (laughs) How had this young god noticed bland, boring me? And I must say, he wasn't like other boys on campus either. Within an hour of meeting him, I was besotted, smitten, and remained so the rest of the school year. But a small town like Holland couldn't contain such a nonconformist. And he returned home in the spring. Now, I couldn't call him the one that got away because I never really had him. (laughs) He had a harem's worth of girlfriends that year. Girls who held their cigarettes and studied poses. Girls who had mastered the eyelash bat. (laughs) And girls with breathy voices who had huge tits. Not to mention the girlfriend back home, but he left his mark on me. He cracked me out of that shell, and for the remaining years at college, I felt like a soaring bird. Now, as I sat at that restaurant, I figured he had married that girlfriend that he'd left behind. I knew he was still in Jersey. A mutual friend had told me years before that he'd gone to airline mechanics school. Repairing jets seemed an unlikely profession for someone so loose and carefree. Someone who, when stoned, couldn't even tune his own guitar. (laughs) But whatever his fate, it had been eating away at me for all those years. But now I had an excuse to call him. The excuse was David Bowie. The David I was about to call worshiped Bowie and had ignited my own fandom. So I gulped, sipped my remaining beer, flipped open my phone. This was 2008. (laughs) Punched in those numbers and hit send. It went to voicemail. I began babbling, you might remember me. Uh, We went to college together. And then the excuse, my daughter and her boyfriend are huge Bowie Bowie fans, and I want to introduce them to the person who introduced me to Bowie. And then he picked up. Yes, he remembered me. Yes, he still loved Bowie, and he wasn't married, and never had been. I explained that I was. My tone of voice probably conveyed more than whatever I said about the marriage. Everyone knew how miserable I was, (laughs) except my husband. We had been co-workers together in a prison, mismatched, but we'd had a fling, had a baby, and got married to make an unhappy family. My husband was a seething alcoholic who never wanted to go anywhere further than the local party store. I wanted a divorce, but didn't dare bring it up. He became furious and, and enraged when the Price is Right was canceled due to a presidential news conference. What would he think if I asked him, if I told him I was leaving? No, he never laid a hand on me. I feared he would get, grab his loaded gun from the garage and shoot me. But never mind that right now. I was on vacation and talking to a long lost friend. And sure, he wanted to get together. But the only night he was available, the kids had plans so we wouldn't be gathering to talk about Bowie. It would just be my friend David and me. The day before our meeting, the kids and I had lunch with Ken, who I talked about in the opening. I mentioned, uh, uh, I talked about in the opening question. He knew David from college too, knew my obsession with him and chided, what if you two become a thing Ha! I scoffed. That was absurd. So the evening of the rendezvous arrived. I'd bought a new blouse, fresh makeup, and though I vowed chastity, donned my sexy bra, (laughs) or at least as sexy as you can get for an A cup. (laughs) (laughs) We, We met at the Strand bookstore. 18 miles of books, they proclaim in their ads. And I think I scanned them all before he finally arrived. I was up in the ba- up in the ba- upstairs in the bathroom touching up my lipstick when he called. I felt like I was in a movie scene as I walked down the wide stairs and there he was in the American lit section, still slender and handsome but with less hair. He gave me a peck on the cheek, the same riveting blue eyes and slow smile. And he smelled wonderful. We walked downtown and had dinner at a place near Union Square. Dessert followed at another restaurant close to Gramercy Park. Bowie came on the sound system, and our eyes met over chocolate ganache. <laughs> I was titillated by dorm room memories. After dessert, we wandered, up, uh, wandered westward to the Hudson, where we sat on a park bench and watched the river flow while we reviewed our lives. He collected old books and read classic literature and still played the guitar. Yes, he had attended mechanic school but worked in tech support for a shipping company, a job that allowed him to indulge his passion for reading. His old girlfriends included a Brazilian exotic dancer in one of Bob Dylan's old flames. As we talked, I thought of the self-help book about self-actualization. David would never read a self-help book, but he was self-actualized. His life was exactly where he wanted it to be, especially compared to mine, caged in a marriage to a surly retired prison guard. We stopped for a nightcap at a bar in the East Village. He took my hand as we strolled through Tompkins Square Park and headed back to the B&B where we were staying, where I was staying. It was 3 a.m. when we bid adieu on the landing of the B&B in front of a gyrotonics exercise studio. (laughs) He gave me a soft kiss on the lips and then whispered my name, Betsy, and gave me a deep, sultry kiss. It was like our very first kiss on the dorm room steps so many years ago. I wanted to swoon. I actually wanted to do more. I wanted to (laughs) gyrate in front of gyrotonics. (laughs) But we pulled apart, he descended the stairs and I ascended to our room smitten, besotted. It was like college all over again. After so many years in a dead marriage, I'd become a cynic about love, but the date with David recharged something. I I felt transfused. The next morning, I looked at couples differently on this, our last day in the city. Instead of being uh, snide, I was charmed by them. Couples holding hands, couples hugging, couples snuggling. I didn't dare call anything I experienced with David love, but it was like my battery had been recharged. I was on that day 100% electrified. But as I walked off the plane in Grand Rapids, the gangway felt like a gang plank. I emailed David upon my return, but didn't hear back. The usual drudgery of my life prevailed but I savored memories of that night in New York. And then one morning, at the end of summer, he called my cell. I was panicky because my husband was home, but he was sitting in his pickup truck in the driveway, smoking cigarettes and listening to the radio. And luckily, he didn't come in. And then something big happened. I got a job in Traverse City, where I had a second home. I promised my husband I'd be back every weekend, but was hoping that the winter would be nasty and would keep me tied up in Traverse City. David's calls increased in frequency. One came in the middle of the night when I was in Holland. My husband had, had taken to sleeping in the living room, leaving me the bedroom. I dove under the covers and reminded David I was not alone in the house. Now, that was edgy, but his calls when I was in Traverse were sublime. He read me his poetry and talked to the books he was reading. Winter came and I prayed for the bad weather so I could stay up north. Spring arrived and David wanted to visit, see the cherry blossoms, and I wanted him to come but I was raised as a good Christian, uh, never mind all the lusting in my heart, and adultery was a sin. No matter how bad the marriage, I didn't want to be a cheater. And it was time, after so many years, of feeling like I was in a sham marriage to officially end it. So after a sleepless night, and from a distance of 150 miles, I called my husband at 7 7 a.m., to tell him I wanted a divorce. He was more sad than angry and said he figured this would happen sooner or later. I saw a lawyer later that morning and felt like I was soaring again. David, who decades earlier had cracked me out of my shell, had now broken me out of my cage. (laughs) Two weeks after I asked for the divorce and 11 months after our initial reunion, David arrived at my house for a glorious visit. And Ken was right. David and I were a thing for six years.
0: In our final story of the evening, Nancy Baker had thought her days of having to deal with the student with the terrible attitude were behind her when he left the school, but, there would be one more chance meeting.
7: Um, So, several years ago, when I was a high school English teacher, there were several aphorisms to which I did not ascribe because I just thought they were not true. Some of them were things like, grades don't matter. Yeah, they, they really do. Um, another one was "There's no such thing as a stupid question," which is absolutely not true. There's a lot <laughs> of stupid questions. I took great pleasure in telling kids that was a really stupid question. <laughs> and another one that teachers like to use that was totally not true was, "Well, you're just wasting your own time, not mine." I, where I was like, "No, you're freaking wasting my time. Like, <laughs> let's let's go." But there was one cliche that I found to be incredibly true, and that was, "There's one in every." And what that means is no matter what kind of teacher you are, no matter how many lowest quiz scores you drop or taking them outside for a poetry class, the first warm day of spring, there's always one kid who's not going to like you. And you don't know why, and there's nothing you can do about it. And in 2002, that kid for me (coughs) was Stefan. Stefan. (laughs) That's what I call it. So Stefan looked a lot like Garth in Wayne's World. He had (laughs) really shaggy, heavy bangs and blonde, stringy hair, and he wore these really thick horn-rimmed black kind of glasses um, that were so thick that they distorted his eyes to the point where he just looked crazy. And um, he was also the son of Polish immigrants, which was just another kind of weird thing in our community. We didn't have a lot of European immigrants, and I felt really sort of bad for him. Like, gosh, you know, Garth Stefan, you know, like, you aren't a very happy-looking person. And he sort of isolated himself in the back of my classroom and then um, sort of settled into this deep, intense scowl combined with a smirk directed towards me all the time. And uh, as the year progressed, I didn't feel so sorry for him anymore. He also like never did his homework, never did anything in class, so zero after zero was logged in in my grade book behind Stefan the Hater. And um, I talked to him about this, and even when he did do his homework, it was like really half-assed. It was like partially done and unsupported and messy. But there was one thing that he took a lot of care with, in the margins, he wrote all sorts of little Asian letters, characters, phrases, cartoons, things like that. And trying to be nice with Stefan the Hater, one time I walked over to him and I said, what is all of this? This is so interesting. And he just looked at me and he goes, nothing, Mrs. Baker, just, just a little artwork. And he just was re- like, really Jeffrey Dahmer creepy. and. <laughs> And I I said, well, how about we talk about something else like the fact that you're not going to graduate if you don't start doing something in this class because you've got like a D minus right now and you have to graduate, you know, with four English credits and you're not going to graduate. And his smirk fell and he went into a very dark place and he lowered his voice and he said, oh, I will graduate because I'm leaving this place and going right into the Marines. And this time next year, I will be killing people in
6: Afghanistan.
7: Now, it was 2002, and the image of two passenger planes hurtling into the World Trade Center had done a lot of disturbing things to people. But I started to think that maybe Stefan was a little more disturbed than most. So things weren't totally terrible in 2002. Um, I made friends with another teacher named Michael, who taught Japanese at our school. And he and I both lived a mile away from school. And we decided to walk to school together two or three times a week. And we did what all teachers do when we're out of earshot of the school grounds. We talked about our crazy students. And he had a lot of crazy stories to tell, mostly because He had nothing but students who were taking Japanese, and 99% of them were taking Japanese because they were so into anime. Now, Michael denied that they were all taking his class to get into anime, but what was undeniable was they were all dressed in black, they had formed an after-school club, and they spent literally hours after school in the dark watching anime cartoons and eating Japanese snacks called... Melty Kiss Party Winter Premium Chocolate <laughs> and <laughs> sipping some kind of drink called Kiri Kiri Pre-Cure Ala Mode Furry Furry Shake. <laughs> and they were watching things like Dragon Ball Z and Yawara Fashionable Judo Girl and having arguments about it. So one day Michael was relaying some especially quirky story about his Japanese students and he dropped the name Stefan what? You have Stefan in your class? In one fell swoop, I dropped a 10-pound bag of graded papers onto the sidewalk, fished out Stefan's ratty-ass (coughs) half-done assignment, held it up to Michael's face, and I said, what is this stuff he's written in the margins? Is this Japanese? Well, Michael looked at it, and his face fell, and he got very Embarrassed, and he said, "Wow, um, what did you do to piss this guy off?" <laughs> well, I said, "I don't know, nothing. My job, you know, tried to teach him great books, you know, literature, Othello, things like that." I mean, what does this say? And he said, "Well, um, well, uh, you know, uh, this student has has expressed a lot of like complex emotions here." Um, <laughs> I I don't really want to go into everything that he's written here. Some of it's pretty inappropriate, but uh, there's one that's like particularly well drawn out that I'm just going to tell you the British would say, um, it's uh, see you next Tuesday. That's what he's called you. I was fuming. We walked the rest of the mile in utter silence. And I had a few choice expressions for Stefan, too, like teacherly kind of words like um, inappropriate and detention. (laughs) And then some non-teacherly kind of words like, I will so get you for this, you little asshole. (laughs) So by 3.30 that day, Stefan and his mom were in my classroom having a conference. I thought it would be really cool and, and witty as his punishment to make him read out loud everything he wrote about me in the presence of his mother. So he started to read all of these horrific, pornographic, aggressive, awful things, and his mother was completely unfazed. What I quickly realized is that she spoke no English and did not understand Japanese, so it was a completely ineffective punishment. But what she did seem to understand was, this asshole will not graduate, if this doesn't stop. So what we agreed is that he would write me a very lame apology letter and he would, (laughs) you know, step it up a little and hopefully graduate. So I spent the next few months silently returning the odium that he had sent my way. And when June came, I was so glad to see the back of him. As he left, I erased him, he was gone. And then I saw him again. It was two years later. And ironically, I was dining at a restaurant called Kabul House, an Afghani restaurant. And as I waited for my check, I was there with my family. My husband leaned in and he said, "Um, there's a guy at the back. And he's been kind of staring at us the whole time. And he's pretty intense. And he's walking over here right now. I turned slightly to see a young man walking very deliberately and slowly across the restaurant. He was clean-shaven, short hair, a little more filled out, but when I looked at his eyes, I knew it was Stefan, Stefan. (laughs) He walked up to me and I looked at my husband and I said, why don't you take the kids and go out to the car and it's all cool, it's just a former student. Because I didn't want my kids to be there and hear it. So he left, and Stefan reached the table. And he spoke in sort of a small, glassy voice. He said, hi, Mrs. Baker, I thought that was you. He was nervous. He swallowed hard. And that's when I noticed a cane that he leaned heavily on with his full body weight. Hello, Stefan, I said incredibly coldly he's continued I guess you're pretty surprised to see me you probably never wanted to see me again and he looked down he let out a puff of air he goes look I don't want to ruin your evening or anything I really just want to talk to you for a minute and I just need to tell you I'm really sorry and I felt heavy in my chair Somewhere far away or close by, I heard water running and dishes being stacked. Stefan's pain was palpable. Are you all right? I asked. Well, I'm okay, he said. Um, he kind of broke. Part of um, my leg, um, I ended up going to Afghanistan, and I just recently got out of the VA hospital. I was Had a lot of trouble over there. Had about five surgeries. Spent about six months in physical therapy. But really, I just want to talk to you for a second and tell you that Afghanistan was really horrible. And coming back and being wounded was really horrible. And it was so boring in the hospital. And it gave me so much time to think. And you know, Mrs. Baker, how that can make you really crazy? I nodded. And he said, so you know, I started to read. And I want you to know that my favorite book, the first book, was Othello. And I even remembered a lot from our class, even though I didn't think I was paying attention. And then after I read Othello, I read Romeo and Juliet, because I blew that one off my freshman year. And then I read A Midsummer Night's Dream for sophomore year. And then I blew off Macbeth for my junior year, so I read that. But I started with Othello, because I know you wanted me to. You really tried. I know that. And mostly, Shakespeare is what I read the whole time that I was recovering. And it helped, because I was so mean to you. I don't even know why. And I think I'm pretty different now. And that's really all I wanted to say, and thanks. We awkwardly hugged with numbed arms. And he turned and he left. Now, I could wax on about how teaching is amazing. And kids will track you down later until you to change their life. And that's really what it's all about. But they usually don't. And it's not really what teaching is all about. And I could tell you that Stefan and I are really great friends and that every Christmas he sends me a card. But I actually, I never saw him again. But our meeting left me feeling miserable as I recollected that I was so quick to immerse myself and relish a deep animosity towards a 17-year-old boy. And instead of feeling validated in his sincere apology, I just felt leaden and small. And I'm glad that Shakespeare was there as a companion that helped him through something unimaginably painful when no one else was with him when he was healing. And I guess I hope that he still continues to read and read Shakespeare. And I sort of dream that maybe he even covered All's Well That Ends Well. (laughs) Where he would come to Act 1, Scene 1. And I hope that he found a small, comforting phrase, love all, trust few, harm none. Thank you.
0: Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and our guest MC, Elon Cameron. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. This was our last show of the regular 2016-2017 season, but you can catch us on the Upton Morley stage at the Interlochen Center for the Arts on July 16th, a show specially presented by Interlochen Public Radio. If you're interested in performing at a show next season and want a sneak peek at our upcoming themes, Check out Hearsay Traverse City Storytelling on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thanks for a great season four. And we will see you at the Workshop Brewing Company for a brand new season five on October 16th.